with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said to the chief priests and the elders of the people, Hear another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Then he leased it to the tenants and went on a journey. When vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to obtain his produce. But the tenants seized the servants, and one they beat, another they killed, and a third they stoned. Again, he sent other servants, more numerous than the first ones, but they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, thinking, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and acquire his inheritance. They seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants when he comes? They answered him, he will put those wretched men to a wretched death and lease his vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the proper times. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? By the Lord has this been done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I've told this story several times at funerals, so if you've been at one of mine, the first minute and a half you know, but I think it's still worthwhile. When my mother died, I was teaching at the seminary in St. Louis, and so when she died, which was during Holy Week, side note, that's a very inconvenient time to die. Please don't do that to your family, especially if your kid's a priest. She died on Holy Saturday, <clears throat> and so we buried her that next week, but Holy Week is, of course, toward the end of the spring, and I was teaching at a university, which meant as soon as all the funeral stuff was done, I had to head back to do finals and exams and stuff with kids. So in those days right after she died, I didn't really have time to kind of process or grieve in the way that we know is emotionally healthy. And so it wasn't until maybe a month or six weeks after she went that I found myself in the laundry room of the rectory where I was living, and I had gotten a stain on one of my vestments, and so I was trying to get it out, and I wasn't having any luck. You know, I had the OxyClean and white wine and all the things you're supposed to use, and none of it was working. So I did that thing you do when you don't know what to do with laundry. I called my mom. And Dad hadn't turned her phone off yet. So I, 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 I even said, hey, Siri, call Mom. you got to be careful, make sure she doesn't try and do it now. I said, hey, Siri, call mom. And I tucked the phone up here, and I got the phone here, and I'm scraping and working. And dad had not yet turned her phone off. And so I heard her voice for the first time in a month, month and a half. 
And it shocked me so bad I dropped the phone. It's the only time I've ever broken a phone, which is kind of remarkable when you see how I walk. I sat on the floor of that laundry room and I wept for probably a solid half an hour. Just cried and cried and cried like a baby. And then when kind of the moment had passed, the tension lifted, there was sort of new air in my lungs and I began to smile, which I admit is counterintuitive, but hear me out here. I began to smile and even laugh because I realized I didn't need a phone to call my mom anymore. She was closer than she'd been, than when she was alive. When she was alive, she was living in Des Moines and I was living in St. Louis. That was a six-hour drive if I was lucky. But now, I could just speak and she was there. I want to suggest to you, friends, tonight that every single one of us has that bat phone to heaven, that direct line, and it's sitting in your pocket, or at least it should be. That's what this is for. It's a constant, perennial connection, a direct line to the reception board (laughs) in heaven to direct all the calls exactly where they need to go. I want to suggest that the rosary is, is, is the surest and most certain way that in an everyday, flat-footed sort of way, most of us who are busy about all kinds of things that have nothing to do with church can simply stay connected. And I want to suggest that's so important today, not only because today, actually today, like today, October the 7th, is the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, not only because this is the month that we sort of pray over that and remember that in a, in a particular way, but because I think this is actually what Jesus is talking about in the gospel. Ah, come on, Father. Jesus said this in 30, and, and the rosary didn't come about for a thousand years, but kind of. But hear me out here. Jesus gives us a parable, and this parable, understand, is the last parable. This is the very last parable Jesus tells. And it's pointed in a way that the others aren't quite. The others are all about inviting in. This is a warning. (laughs) And it's a pretty stern one. Hear another parable. There was the landowner who planted a vineyard. Now that vineyard, it isn't just us, years later, that associated this parable with the passage from Isaiah in the first reading. Jesus is telling this parable knowing that the people hearing him, when he says, the master planted a vineyard, is going to know what vineyard we're talking about. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a hedge around it, dug a wine press, built a tower, just like in that first reading. Wine press, trench, tower. He sent his servants to the tenants to obtain the grapes. But the tenants, they seized the servants. But the tenants seized the servants. The one they beat, another they killed, and a third they stoned. The Greeks rougher. They treated them more harshly than that before, but they didn't want to harm your pious ears. Again, he sent other servants, more numerous than the first ones, but these they treated in the same way. And so finally, he sent his son, thinking they will respect the son. He's about to die. He's about to die, and he tells a story about a landowner who sends his son to clean stuff up, who the people reject and then kill. This is as unsubtle as Jesus ever gets. It's like he's poking them in the eye as he does it. Come, let us kill him and acquire his inheritance, they say. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and then killed him. 
What will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants when he comes? And they, that is the chief priests and the elders, the ones who are about to put him to death, they answer, he will put those wretched men to a wretched end and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the proper time. Now, Jesus could have just dropped the mic right there and walked away. Because at least some of them had to know what he was getting at because they were already actively plotting to kill him. But he takes it a step further. Did you never read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected, that has become the cornerstone. Now, understand this, gang. That's not possible. Cornerstones are at the bottom. You can't start building, throw something out, and then halfway through the building, go back, tear it all down, and start over. You certainly couldn't do that in the ancient world. But that is exactly what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. The stone the builders rejected, those responsible for tending the vineyard, has become the cornerstone, the chief piece, the thing that's going to hold it all together. By the Lord has this been done, and it is a marvel in our eyes. Why would it be a marvel? Why would it be a marvel unless God tore the thing down and started new? And that is precisely what he's proposed to do in us, in the church. Now, this, this gets tense. I'm not making any kind of claim about today's Jews, so nobody get the wrong idea here. This is, this is a very historical sort of a piece, but it's important history for us because it's our history. It's the history out of which we come. And the history we come out of is God did a thing, and the people he was doing with the thing said, we don't want that no more. <laughs> and he said, okay. And so he redid the thing. And the thing he redid, he gave to us as tenants. As tenants. Now, friends, most of us have been tenants at some point, or at least like lived in our parents' basement. Uh, the tenant does not own the house. It's not the tenant's house. He doesn't have proprietary rights over the house. He gets to live there. He has an arrangement with the landlord. He can do these things and these things, but not those things, right? And he's reminded constantly of the fact that it's not his house by the fact that he's got to pay rent or produce to the landlord. Now, the tenants here are not just being slow with the rent. They're like those guys that rent an Airbnb and never leave. <laughs> They've taken the space and they're wholly unwilling to pay for it. And so he sends the son, and the son is, in a certain sense, come to do damage to the tenants. He's not coming politely with a clipboard saying, could you maybe probably sort of give me the check you've owed me for the last several years. But when they murder the son, they make their intentions clear. They want no part of him or what his father is about, which is a real tragedy since the tenants didn't grow up on the land. They didn't come to it from their own. Wasn't their father's land that somebody else had stolen from somebody? No, no, no. The landlord invited the tenants. 
I mean, I've had bad house guests, but can you imagine inviting the tenants, inviting guests into your home, they take over your house and murder your children. That's what he's pointing us to here. And if we don't grasp the discomfort there, then we can't possibly understand why it matters if we're going to do this. The original sin, this is is from Father Schmemann, the great Orthodox scholar, the original sin is forgetting to whom we belong. The original sin is forgetting to whom we belong. It's not simply pride or arrogance, though there is a kind of uh, arrogancy, right, in, in, in reaching for the fruit that we've been forbidden. There is a kind of arrogancy in trying to make ourselves God and determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. But the first sin is in forgetting to whom we belong and to whom the vineyard belongs. It ain't our vineyard. And we are not our own. That bristles against everything that makes us American, doesn't it? I'm going to do it my way, myself. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll tell you what's right and wrong. You do what's good for you. I'm going to do what's good for me. There's a word for that, but the last time I used it in church, I got yelled at by the bishop. So it's not true, and none of us believes it's true. We like to believe it's true because it allows us to do things we otherwise wouldn't do. But we know it's not true because the moment the other guy does it to us, it just pisses us off. It bristles against everything we know. This is not right. We are not our own. Of course we're not our own. You don't come from yourself. You didn't make yourself. You didn't conceive yourself or birth yourself or care for yourself for the first years. I don't care how bad your parents were. Nobody did that, ever, in the whole history of the human race. Romulus and Remus even had a wolf to take care of them. I don't know who you think you are if you honestly think you're totally self-made, but it's a lie from the devil and you need to get it out now. You are dependent on the person sitting next to you, whether you want to be or not, and together we're all dependent on him. That's why we do this, and that's why we keep these suckers in our pockets. And hopefully, at least once a day, pull them out to thumb. Because we depend on her. Without her, we don't have him. Without him, we don't have none of this. We need the mother to get to the son. We need to stay connected to her. Remember, some, some people maybe didn't have this experience, but I know I'm not the only one. Remember when you were a kid, and you'd go to another kid's house, and, and, and your parents taught you, right, like, look and see if they leave the shoes at the door and, and, and call his mom, missus, and always be polite and greet the parents first or this kind of thing? Yeah. You're just going to sidle up to Jesus and ignore the woman who's serving you the hummus and pita? It's crazy. Trying to do Jesus without his mother is like trying to love your best friend without his family, without reference to his family, as though he popped up out of the ground one day, whole and entire, just the way he is. It's not going to get you very far, and you're going to offend him. Why? Because everybody loves their mom. Even people who hate their moms love moms in principle. That's how they know to hate theirs. We keep these with us, and we thumb these beads, and we say these prayers over and over and over again, greeting she who has brought salvation to us in her womb, For the same reason that I still want to call my mom, even though the phone won't work anymore. We say over and over and over again, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, Hail Mary. Making God's word put on the lips of the angel our own words. 
Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. Taking the words of St. Elizabeth and making them ours. Naming who she is and to whom she belongs so that we can remember who we are and to whom we belong. And we offer this sacrifice and we sup at this table because it is our family's table. It is a dining room table at which we sup with God. We sin not just because we're weak and stupid, though we are. I'm the first of you. We sin because we forget who we are. We forget where our loyalty needs to lie because we forget to whom we belong and where we ought to be. We give up on this because it gets hard. Because it's annoying and boring and I get distracted. You ever get distracted when talking to your folks? Thinking about where you're going to go next? What you're going to do? I got a niece who's got a prom in T-minus one minute and 49, one hour and 49 minutes. She's with her mom right now, and I guarantee you she is not thinking about mom. Does that mean you stop talking to her? Don't pay her any mind? Don't give her time of day? Of course not. And when you leave, even if you're not thinking it, even if you're madder in hell and right now you don't quite mean it, you still kiss her on the cheek and say, love you, Ma. Or you should. Because the day will come when you can't. Thanks be to God, we all have a mother already in heaven, waiting and ready to take our call. Monastic communities keep these at their belts, and there's a reason for that. I lived in it for a long time. I still keep mine in my left-hand pocket. Here's a good social signal. If I'm ever talking to you, and I reach into my left-hand pocket and my hand starts moving, you don't need to worry that I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. You should probably worry that I'm upset. Because this is what I do to keep myself straight so that I don't fall into sin, so I don't say something I shouldn't or, or, or stumble into something I oughtn't. Hmm? Keep this close on your bedpost, in your purse, in your pocket, on your dash, Keep it close, and when you need it, grab for it. You can't finish the whole thing? She don't care. My mom appreciated a 30-second phone call as much as a 30-minute one. Yours will, too. I can't always focus. I'm not always fully present. I'm not always paying attention. She don't care. She don't care. Call your mother. Call your mother. Spend time with her son.